the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for Talk Law Radio with Todd Marquardt. Todd Marquardt, attorney at law in Texas. If you're a millionaire or a thousandaire, Talk Law Radio is now on the air. Call in with your business law question, your elder law question. Veteran aid, Medicaid, build a business to get paid. 210-308-8867. Or ask a question online at marquardlawfirm.com. That's M-A-R-Q-U-A-R-D-T, lawfirm.com. And now, it's Talk Law Radio with Todd Marquardt. Welcome to Talk Law Radio. I'm your host, Todd Marquardt. We're here on 9.30 a.m. The Answer and on podcasts wherever you can find one. Try interacting with me on the show today by posting a comment on Facebook, or you can uh, find me on Twitter and post a comment there. The sponsor of today's show is Marquardt Law Firm, and attorneys at Marquardt Law Firm focus on business and estate law, including last wills, living trusts, and tax-protected inheritance plans, old businesses and new businesses, which might have issues with corporations, contracts, LLCs, family-limited partnerships, and we can represent those who are facing problems from lack of planning, like in district court, county court, or probate court. The State Bar of Texas is the state agency that governs attorney law licenses, and the State Bar wants attorneys to inform the public about the law. But because legal advice must be tailored to the specific circumstances of each case, and because laws are ever-changing, material discussed in this program is meant for general informational purposes only and is not to be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice. Although the information has been gathered from sources believed to be reliable, please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information you learn today should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Before we get started talking about the law, let's begin with prayer. Dear God, thank you for this day and for all the gifts and blessings that you give to us. Please forgive us for our mistakes, for doing the wrong thing, or failing to do your will. Please help Dr. John Delatore and me give good information to the listeners about forensic psychology today. Help us to use the gifts and talents you have provided for the good of your people, for our own good, and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now it's time to discover your legal issue blind spots by listening to me talk about the law on the radio. And today's show is about the hidden legal issue blind spots regarding forensic psychology. I know that might sound interesting to you because it was interesting to me before I met Dr. John Delatore. He's a licensed psychologist in Arizona and Texas and holds the authority to practice interjurisdictional telepsychology. Welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. We also have with us uh, attorney Daniel Palmer. He works in a Marquardt law firm. He focuses on estate planning and probate law. Um, but years ago, he was in criminal defense. And so he has some interesting experience with uh, forensic psychologists as well. Dr. John Delatore is a doctor of psychology. He's licensed, like I said, in uh, Arizona and Texas and does interjurisdictional telepsychology. He earned his doctorate from Midwestern University in Glendale. He's, which is an APA-accredited program. Dr. Delatore completed his doctoral internship at a crisis stabilization unit and completed advanced training in forensic psychology. Dr. Delatore provides therapy and assessment for a variety of concerns, including 
providing interventions to the severely mentally ill, individuals with significant trauma histories, and crisis interventions and de-escalation. He has training and experience in various assessments, including general psychological risk threat assessments. He's a member of the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals, which is ATAP. He has uh, experience in competency to stand trial and criminal responsibility assessments, psychosexual evaluations. He's a member of the Association for Treatment of Sexual Abusers. He does assessments for police and public safety and immigration evaluations. He's a trial consultant and often provides psychological analysis for television news and court shows. So with all that background being said, Dr. Delatory, please tell us where are you from? Well, I was born here in San Antonio, but uh, we moved around a lot when I was a kid. So we ended up settling in Corpus Christi, Flower Bluff to be exact, Um, high school, college, uh, graduate school where I was working in Austin for a little bit before I decided to go back to get my doctorate at Midwestern. I uh, was working there in private practice, in a group private practice for a little while before I decided to move back to San Antonio to start my own private practice. And since my entire family lives here, just figured it was the best option uh, to ha- having a foundation of establishing my practice here. So... Daniel also grew up here. I'm from New Mexico, so I don't know any of the parts of towns or high schools or anything. Um, But give us an idea of where you went to high school, and maybe you know the same people. Um, So I went to uh, Antonian College Prep uh, right over off of uh, West Avenue in Castle Hills area. So I don't know. Where where did you go? Well, like I said, in Flower Bluff. So I went to Flower Bluff High School. Yeah. Right, the the fighting hornets. Where I went. <laughs> okay, and so how did you come up with the idea to be a psychologist? What made you want to join this profession? Curiously enough, uh, one of the first psychology uh, classes that I took in undergrad, uh, the there was a section on um, uh, deception detection. And the professor had brought in one of these old school lie detector tests and showed us how it worked and showed us how to beat it. Mm-hmm. And so from then on, that's when I started getting more and more into psychology and stuff like that. And then I figured there was a lot that I could use uh, a psychology background in. I just needed to have ad- advanced education and training in it. Got the got my first master's degree in psychology at uh, Texas A&M Corpus Christi. Worked for a little bit. Knew I needed some more. Um, got a doctorate, and then even after the doctorate, I knew that I, there was more knowledge for me to get. So when I came back to San Antonio, uh, being a forensic psychologist and and having that background in uh, u- utilizing psychology in the law. I decided that St. Mary's School of Law would be a good opportunity. So I'm not in the JD program. I'm in the Master's of Jurisprudence program. So even after getting a doctorate, I felt it was necessary to have an educational foundation in the law, considering that that's, you know, what the job is supposed to be. That's a lot of training. <laughs> you can never have too much training. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, when you're, when you're going to go testify and they proffer you up as an expert, it's best to have as much as you can Right. As much as you can ask. Yeah, that makes you a very valuable forensic psychologist. Uh, what else can you tell us about your, your background that led to this? Um, what makes your practice unique um, besides all the training that you've been in? Uh, well, it's, it's, a, it's a much more expansive practice than I think a lot of forensic psychologists have. Um, we tend to kind of focus on one area, whether it be criminal law or family law or civil or something like that, personal injury, emotional distress kinds of things. But uh, my practice, it, I'm starting to include uh, mediation, negotiations, starting to include trial consultation and stuff like that. So it's 
it's about how can you utilize someone who has an understanding of human behavior in novel ways, right? In ways that perhaps you wouldn't have considered from before. Okay, that's really interesting. And we're hopefully going to teach our audience today how this can help them if they find themselves in one of those situations where they're in trial, they might need an expert to help them in in their situation. So we have to take a break. Stay tuned. When we come back, we'll talk about a case study of uh, a situation that hits close to home. Stay tuned. could be a nightmare for your family, which is why it's important to meet with an attorney before you go on vacation. Get your affairs in order just in case, God forbid, tragedy strikes and you become disabled or worse happens while traveling. Attorneys at Marquardt Law Firm focus on business and estate law, including last wills, living trust, and tax-protected inheritance plans. A living trust might save your family thousands of dollars. Protect what's yours at Marquardt Law Firm, 210-530-4278. Welcome back to Talk Law Radio. I'm Todd Marquardt here with Dr. John Delatore, a forensic psychologist, and attorney Daniel Palmer. And in the first segment, we were talking about Dr. Delatore's background. And uh, now I'd like to talk about a case study that hits close to home. It may hit so close to home that it may draw some emotional response. So if you need to pull over, now might be a good time. Um, I, I'm sensitive to the fact that people have been through traumatic situations, and, and I pray that the Lord will comfort you during that time. And uh, for, for those that are interested, we're going to talk about a case study involving an, an active shooter in a, in a public institution and how a forensic psychologist might get involved in that. John, how, do, how does a forensic psychologist get involved? Well, I think it depends on what area or at what time um, the individual kind of gets known to law enforcement uh, of the potential of, of violence. Because like you described in my intro, I'm a member of the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals. So what we're looking at is kind of getting in fairly early uh, when someone gets identified as potentially being a risk for violence. And it's not only I – th- I think one of the curious things is that it's not only violence against other people. It's often violence against themselves, right? It's also ideas that they might be having of self-harm that – for some reason, uh, it gets externalized, right? It turns inside and it goes outside. So it, it starts becoming issues related to, well, if I'm hurting this bad, then I'm going to make other people hurt bad as well. So you really, you want a psychologist, not necessarily forensic psychologist, but you want a psychologist kind of early on in identifying what might be going on with someone who has a particular set of characteristics that are associated with um, someone who might commit an act of of mass violence, Um, individuals who have a predilection towards violence, whether they're uh, exacting violence on animals and stuff like that Mm -hmm. or they're making constant uh, comments about engaging in violence, Uh, individuals who become increasingly isolated from people, individuals who in that isolation only have thoughts that are associated with engaging in some kind of violent act, right? All of these different kinds of things. You kind of want a psychologist getting involved fairly early to Mm -hmm. develop a plan to manage those individuals because no one is born wanting to commit an act like this. Mm -hmm. It's that they are left to their own devices, right? They're left on their own without any real connection, real solid connection, real healthy and positive connections. So it becomes an echo chamber of negativity that's going on. 
that they're getting from social media, from video games and stuff like that. Um, as you progress through, you want the psychologist still being involved in the management of that individual. Once you identify them as being potential, they don't necessarily lose that potentiality, right? It's all constantly there. It's just better managed, right? You find ways of incorporating that individual into whatever it is that's positive, either better connections through family, friends, through the church or something like that. You get them in more and more involved. You reduce the, the, the risky behaviors they're involved in, they're involved in including bullying. Right. If you know that someone is being bullying, being bullied, then you, we've got to make changes to that environment so they're not experiencing that anymore. And then towards the end, right, if if uh, if an act has already been committed, a forensic psychologist can really help kind of fit a narrative to help people understand. What's curious now is that before. Um, a lot of these individuals who commit these acts of violence would subsequently die following the, their act, right? Mm -hmm. Either they would commit suicide or they would uh, do suicide by cop, right? Have mm -hmm. a police officer shoot them or something like that. That hasn't been the trend as of late. A lot of these individuals remain alive. And so you can really get an opportunity for a psychologist to get in there to talk to the person to figure out what exactly it was that was going on in their mind at the state that they were – at the state of the uh, uh, of what they were going to do to really talk about, okay, well, all of this stuff was going on inside the person. How can that then lead to someone committing an act like this? Because it's a it's really an act that I think a lot of people truly don't understand because it's very very nuanced. Well, let me stop you there, um, Daniel. Once upon a time, you were a prosecutor. I was, and um, maybe. Maybe you did or didn't do one of these cases. Uh, you don't have to talk about specific cases, but what would a prosecutor um, do once somebody was uh, being charged with a crime? How would they bring in uh, a forensic psychologist on the prosecution side? Sure. So it's it's a little more rare for um, a forensic psychologists to work, and your experience might be different, but it's a little bit more rare for them to work with the prosecution. It's a lot more common um, for them to work with defense. Okay. And, uh, you know, I think one of the reasons for that is um, the, the burden of proof, obviously, in any criminal case lies on the state. Um, and one of the things that they do not have to prove, and they usually don't want to bring in, is the why. Um, and sometimes juries want to know why did this happen? Mm -hmm. Um, and prosecutors will try to push that out as much because if the defense has a good expert, like a forensic psychologist, um, they might be able to humanize, uh, the, the defendant by, by explaining the why because of having a very difficult background or being bullied or whatever it might be. Um, and so on the defense side, because I did criminal defense as well, after I was a prosecutor. Um, we would use uh, forensic psychologists significantly more. And it's one of those situations to where, you know, we wish that if they were involved before all this happened, maybe it could have been prevented. Mm -hmm. um, but whenever I worked those cases as a defense attorney, I, I wanted a forensic psychologist on the case as soon as I got retained. Um, the, the work is, is long and arduous, and the earlier you get started, uh, usually the more beneficial it can be. Okay. So after that, defense attorney retains you to help prepare the case, what are some things that uh, you think the audience should know about how you work? Well, we tend to do a deep dive into the individual's background, right? That's called the clinical interview. We're taking, uh, we're taking a real deep dive into what was going on from the moment that they were born up until how they committed whatever it was that they did. Uh, a unique aspect of being a psychologist is that there we are allowed to use psychological tests. Now, that has some problems moving forward when it comes to testimony, but it is one of the things that separate a psychiatrist, right, who's just a medical doctor with some training in psychology, uh, as opposed to a psychologist who spends a lot of time doing psychological assessments. And when you start using that, particularly if you're being retained uh, by the defense, you're most likely going to be used for as a mitigation, as a part of mitigation. And so when you use some of these psychological assessments, what you can really do is put into context under what circumstances might an individual be violent again, right? You're really thinking about what were the contexts in which the person was violent originally 
And then what can – under what circumstances, under what scenarios, under what environmental influences will a person be violent again? And if those don't exist, right, then you can, you can testify then to say, well, the individual may have committed those uh, – may have committed this offense right then and there because these specific circumstances were present. But because they're not present anymore, they're less likely to then commit another violent act. And that's something that we see, particularly in these kinds of cases, that the individual is propelled into committing this act because they are facing a set of circumstances that you're probably not really going to see again, right? You'll probably see them in another fashion, but you're not going to see those specific things again. And if that's the case, if that person's not going to be confronted with those things again, the potentiality of them committing another act goes down. Daniel, I wanted to ask you to define mitigation. Can you tell the audience how the the process of prosecution and punishment works and how mitigation fits? Sure. So um, mitigation is a technique that uh, the defense will use to basically, um, kind of like we talked about earlier, to explain the why. Um, you know, yes, uh, a jury has found someone, an individual guilty of a crime, um, but these are some other things that you need to take into consideration when you're assessing punishment. And so the audience could be the judge. Um, you know, after the guilt innocence phase, the defense can choose the judge for punishment or they can choose the jury. So sometimes the audience is the judge. Sometimes the audience is the jury. Um, what is uh, interesting about mitigation and especially working with forensic psychologists is they have to know their audience just as much as we have to know our audience. Um, the way that we're going to phrase our arguments to uh, a judge as an attorney is going to be very different than from a jury. Same thing goes with the forensic psychologist. Mm-hmm. So after the guilt-innocence phase, if, uh, if your client is found uh, guilty, then it moves to the punishment portion. And that's where this mitigating evidence uh, comes in, again, to say, yes, you have decided a crime has been committed, but these are the reasons why punishment should be lessened. Okay. And you're, are you used more heavily in that phase than in the, the trial phase of guilt-innocence? It depends on when I'm retained. So if I'm a court-ordered expert for something, uh, no, I'm, pretty, I'm used fairly early on in the guilt-innocence phase. If I'm retained by just the, the random defense attorney that contacts me. It depends on what the referral question is. Uh, 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 whenever you contact a psychologist, you really give them a referral question, which is a, a psycholegal question that we can answer. And at that point, if, it, if the referral question is, yes, my client you know, committed X, Y, and Z, we understand that, but we think that because uh, of some drug use or because of some traumatic brain injury or some other issue that's at play, uh, can you talk about how those things would impact my, def- uh, my defendant's uh, decision making? Right? So essentially that's the referral question for mitigation where we're exploring what kinds of issues have gone on in that person's background and really looking at those histories of trauma, those histories of, in which a person's impulse control is problematic through ADHD, through drug use, right, through mental illness and stuff like that to determine the severity of those kinds of things, which could help say that the person may not necessarily have been in full capacity of all of their faculties and probably should be more rehabilitated than punished. You mentioned some of the factors that people should be watchful of that um, sort of lead somebody to either self-harm or harm for others. Um, After the break, can we talk about maybe some simple techniques that a lay person can use to de-escalate an emergency situation? Sure. Okay, that'll be good for us to talk about after the break. want to remind everybody that we're on Talk Law Radio on 930 AM, The Answer. You can also find this episode on podcasts everywhere after the show. And we've been talking to Dr. John Delatore about uh, forensic psychology. We've been talking to attorney Daniel Palmer about when a prosecutor or a criminal defense attorney would use a forensic psychologist. And and so I want to get to this question of how can a layperson 
use a simple technique to hopefully de-escalate an emergency uh, dangerous situation. Um, sometimes I, I hear about this uh, on the radio. I read about it in articles where somebody says, not only did I give him my wallet, but I gave him my coat, and then I took him to lunch. You ever heard this kind of a story? Oh, yeah. yeah. I worry about whether that's really the right, correct thing to do. <laughs> so um, this is Talk Law Radio. We're going to take a break. Stay tuned. to Talk Law Radio. I'm Todd Marquardt. We're on 9.30 a.m. The Answer and on podcasts everywhere. Today, we're talking about the hidden legal issue blind spot of forensic psychology. How does that meet and intersect and cross with legal issues? Our guest, Dr. John Delatore, doctor of psychology, is a licensed psychology in Arizona and Texas, and holds the authority to practice interjurisdictional telepsychology. Dr. Delatore, can you tell us? Um, we've been talking about violence and uh, the case study of the the mass shooter. What are some uh, tips that? A lay person could do to quickly de-escalate some uh, violent emergency act. Yeah, so I'm going to start by saying whatever it is that you do that keeps you alive is the most important thing, right? Whatever it is that you feel that you have to do in order to stay alive, it, that's the thing that's the most important. That's the thing that was going to work because it's the thing that did work. But when it comes to when you're going to when you're faced with uh, an emergency situation like that, and you have no notice that it's going to happen. The first thing that you have to do is you have to remain calm yourself. These individuals who would commit an act of just any violence, much less mass violence, are operating uh, at, at, at an emotional level that we can't comprehend, and it's not always going to be on the person's face. So you need to maintain your own sort of calmness, your own emotional stability in order to think through what might be coming up next okay. because it's a dynamic situation. Mm -hmm. After that, you want to start humanizing yourself, right? You want to start saying, you know, your name. You want to ask what the other person's name is. You want to talk about why they're doing whatever it is that they're doing in a matter of fact and, and calm way. All of these things lead an individual to start being connected. And that's one of the key things that anybody who commits any kind of violence is that they feel disconnected from other people for various reasons, but mm -hmm. they feel disconnected. And if you can put yourself in a position uh, to, to establish that connection, you have a better chance at de-escalating that situation. So as a lay person, the first thing that I would say is whatever you have to do to survive, survive. The second thing is... Put yourself in a position to humanize yourself and humanize the person and tell them that, that you understand that they might be going through some things and that you're there to listen because often they feel that no one has listened to their issues. And now, is your, now they have an opportunity okay. to listen to, to these kinds of things. Daniel, uh, what are some questions that, that you have um regarding this segment about mass violence? Sure. So, you know, one thing that was, uh, was mentioned uh, earlier was uh, the fact that there has been a trend um, where more of these mass shooters are surviving as opposed to, I guess, in the past, um, you know, we saw a trend of suicide by cop or um, suicide, obviously, by the individual. Um, so my question that I'm curious about, um, just as a layperson, you know, outside of my career is, uh, what are we learning now that now that folks are are surviving these mass shooters are surviving? What are we learning through um, 
you know, through the lenses of you and, and what you do for a living in order uh, to figure out uh, the why, like we talked about earlier, and what can be done to, you know, possibly prevent these acts. Right. So it starts with a pathway to violence. If we understand how a person can move from where they're just thinking about harming themselves or harming other people to the end, end point, which is uh, I'm definitely going to harm other, uh, other people, what we start noticing is that it's not a snap. Right. People don't snap. And that's still common. This is a phrase commonly used, you know, even in the media and stuff like that. The person just one day snapped. And that's not that's not accurate. They spent a lot of time planning these kinds of things. They spent a lot of time fantasizing about these kinds of things. What they what's going on is that through the level of disconnect that they feel, right, all humans want to be connected to other people. But they feel a sense of disconnection either through bullying or through uh, other issues that might be at play through their own mental illness or other issues that might be at play when it comes to delusional thinking and conspiracy thinking and things like that. It really disconnects them. The further they go into that isolation and the more that they crave being understood, the more they're going to fantasize about the act. Once that fantasy is no longer fulfilling, then they're going to start making steps, right? Substantial steps beyond mere preparation, right? Where they start accumulating the weapons that they're going to use. And this isn't just a, a gun issue, right? That's an issue that's here in the United States. But there are other places where bombs are used, cars are used, you know, blades are used, uh, all kinds of melee weapons are used. It, it, it's it's about guns here for sure, but there's more to it than just if we let go or if we restrict gun ownership uh, that that's going to solve the problem. It won't. We'll, these individuals will find another way mm -hmm. to commit this act because they feel compelled to do it over a long-standing grievance-gathering issues where even slight things, things that you and I would just shrug off, they hold dearly and they, it's a it's a real – uh, wound to their own self-esteem, to their own egos. All of these kinds of things build and build and build over time. And if there's not a proper intervention, if there's not an opportunity for a teacher, a psychologist, a counselor, even just a friend, a parent, anybody to come in and say, hey, we're noticing that something's going on. If there's not that opportunity, that person is going to be in a negative feedback loop where that's constantly what they're, they're hearing. That's constantly what they're looking for. And some of them engage in what we would consider to be a performance crime, right? These are individuals who uh, want to commit a previous act in their own way. If they saw that the other person who committed a mass casualty event gets a lot of publicity, gets a lot of notoriety, then some individuals, they might want to have that same shining light put on them. This is a performance crime. Mm -hmm. They want the light on them as well. So we're noticing that some of these individuals, they may want to stay alive in order to bask in the, the, the glow of committing this crime. Uh, some, some are contagion uh, problems where if it happens in one area, and we see this a lot in suicides, if we see it happen uh, at one time, then other individuals who had also been considering it at the same time notice that, okay, one person did it. Now it's time for me to do it as well. They're not copycatting. It's a contagion, right? It's a spread of them believing that one other person did it. I'm waiting. I was waiting for someone else to do it. They did it. So now I'm going to do it Okay, as well. I'm getting scared. So let's uh, – let's – Go to a different subject. Um, since you, Daniel, were in the, the criminal prosecution and defense area, and uh, Dr. Delatory, you're involved in this issue too. So let, let's imagine somebody has committed a, a heinous act and they're still alive and they're going to be prosecuted. Well, one of the issues then is are they competent to stand trial? Daniel, will you? Uh, tee that up, frame that out for us? Sure. Um, you know, I, I think Dr. De La Torre would probably be the better person to answer the question because it's, it's pretty complex. Um, but that is definitely one of the first things that, you know, as a prosecutor that, that we look at, um, especially when uh, dealing with juvenile crimes. So what does that mean to be competent? So to, to have the ability to understand basically uh, your actions and the consequences of those actions. So understanding um, not only the crime that you're committing, why you're committing the crime and the end result. Um, and so there are situations, especially in juvenile court, um, to where because of 
where their brain development is. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of other factors that have to come into it. It's not as cut and dry as in as in criminal adult criminal cases. Um, and so I think Dr. Del Torre could probably talk a little bit about that yeah. more, especially that difference between juveniles and adults. Yeah. So when we're looking, when when we're being asked to perform a, comp- a competency to stand trial evaluation, we're really looking at number one: is the person currently of a mental status that they are aware of what's going on right now, right? Currently, what's and going like on when right now? When they're sitting in the courtroom, when they're sitting in the courtroom, can they assist in their own defense? And assist in their own defense might take a, a lot of forms, um, but. Having no memory of having committed the act, which is a common thing that you see in a, a lot in, in criminal acts. Oh, well, I just don't remember doing mm-hmm. this. I've That's not good enough. Or something. That's not good enough for a lack of competency, mm-hmm. right? So um, you're you're also looking at do they understand uh, the consequences of engaging in a certain plea bargain, right? Do they understand what a plea bargain is? Do they understand the difference between a felony and a misdemeanor? Right? Do they understand how evidence can be presented? Do they even know uh, why they shouldn't talk to the prosecutor? So right? is this an intelligence question or a mental illness question? It can be both, right? So when we're looking at competency, what the statute tells us is that this is a mental – as a result of a mental disease or defect. So it can be that it is a mental illness, that someone is currently engaged in the symptoms of a serious mental illness like, let's say, schizophrenia, where they truly don't know where they are at the moment. And they Mm -hmm. truly will probably act out in court, right, that they might say something or do something simply because the voices in their head are telling them Mm -hmm. to do this, that perhaps they are not competent. So then they'll go to uh, competency restoration, they'll get some medications, and then they'll be evaluated again. And if, they're, if, if their symptoms have been remitted enough, then the, they'll be found competent. Okay, so related to competency, at least in my mind, uh, would be the question about insanity versus sanity as a, a defense maybe in um, a prosecution of somebody that commits an act like this so we have to take a break we have a lot to talk about Uh, we'll be right back stay tuned could be a nightmare for your family, which is why it's important to meet with an attorney before you go on vacation. Get your affairs in order just in case, God forbid, tragedy strikes and you become disabled or worse happens while traveling. Attorneys at Marquardt Law Firm focus on business and estate law, including last wills, living trust, and tax-protected inheritance plans. A living trust might save your family thousands of dollars. Protect what's yours at Marquardt Law Firm, 210-530-4278. Welcome back to Talk Law Radio. I'm Todd Marquardt. We're here on 9.30 a.m. The Answer and on podcasts everywhere. So if you have a question that you'd like to talk about on the air, please email me at host at talklawradio.com. That's H-O-S as in Sam, T as in Timothy, at talklawradio.com. And if you have questions for Dr. Delatore, you can find his contact information in the show notes on the podcast, uh, which will be uploaded following today's show. Uh, we were just talking about competency to stand trial, and uh, now I'd like to talk about the question of sanity or insanity as a defense. So let's imagine that somebody's being prosecuted for one of these mass murders, and they have a defense attorney. Uh, when is this defense going to come up? So usually it starts being developed, um, you know, early on in the defense of the case. And, you know, one thing that I think, um, and I think that the media is kind of responsible for this, is that uh, a lot of people think that you just can plead insanity and and that's it. And, you know, uh, it's just automatically let in. There's no precursor to it. But that's not the case. Um, Sometimes judges won't allow in an insanity defense. And, 
uh, just to clear it up, what an insanity defense is, it's something that's called an affirmative defense. And so in the criminal world, an affirmative defense is a defense that says, yes, this crime was committed, but the client should or the defendant should be excused uh, because of reasons X, Y, Z. So the insanity defense is an affirmative defense. It's saying, yes, this crime was committed, but because of some sort of uh, recurring or uh, persistent episodic psychiatric illness or disease um, at the time of the criminal act, they should not be held responsible for it. Um, and so there's a lot of factors that go into it when you're forming that defense as a criminal defense attorney. Um, and there are uh, uh, there's a heck of a lot of work for the, uh, the uh, forensic psychologist to do in order to assist the attorney to push that defense uh, to the judge and try to convince them that it's valid. What are some factors, Dr. Dilatory, that, that would either uh, approve or, or dismiss that type of defense? Yeah, the, the evaluation for criminal responsibility, right, I'm just going to call it just the general term that okay. a psychologist would use, um, is really one of the more nuanced evaluations that a forensic psychologist can do simply because of the very jurisdiction statutes that exist. Essentially what we're saying is that the individual did not know what they were doing was wrong. But not every jurisdiction just has that phrase, right? That's how it's uh, described in Texas. But some jurisdictions have it described that they couldn't comport themselves to the law. So the, in whatever jurisdiction you're practicing in, it becomes increasingly more nuanced the, the further detailed that the statute becomes. And when we're talking about wrong, we're really looking at, well, it, was it morally wrong or legally wrong? If it's morally wrong, right, then that person can still be found insane. So they may know that something is a crime legally, right, that they might know that committing an act of murder is a crime. Mm -hmm. But their uh, mental disease or defect, again, how it's described in the statute, their mental disease of defect, essentially they believe themselves to have been committing this act based on some moral uh, right. authority. Yeah. And so even just one aspect of those two things, and, and you're really looking at both of them. Now, again, some jurisdictions have it carved out where it's only legally wrong. While Texas doesn't describe it that way, and Texas doesn't have a, a clear case law issue where it says you're only looking at morally wrong or you're only looking at legally wrong. And if it doesn't say specifically, then you have to look at both. And this is where, it, again, it becomes nuanced. Does that person have issues related to thinking that what they did was not wrong? And if they think that, why not? And so it can, it can easily become a very complicated and nuanced evaluation to, to complete. So in my mind, anybody that commits a mass murder must be insane. But I'm, I'm probably using the term in, incorrectly, Right. Well, I think it depends on, you know, it depends on the circumstances, um, you know, and I think it depends on, um, you know, obviously the, the amount of planning that went in, their background, their history. Um, you know, I, I'm sure that you've seen situations in, in your practice to where there are people that um, might not fit the clinical or legal definition of insane, but still committed these acts, I would imagine, right? Yeah. So when we're looking at, uh, as we take Texas uh, uh, specifically, uh, during the act of the offenses charged, right? So if there's no charge for a certain aspect of the crime, then you're only looking at a certain thing. So it's certainly possible that because someone committed a, a mass casualty event, something that we have a hard time understanding, doesn't mean then that they were insane at the time. They could completely have thought out in a, 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 in a clear way what they were doing and why they were doing it. So they knew that it was wrong. It's the, just so far deviated from societal norms that... Well, that's we why can't. you contact a forensic psychologist yeah. to help you put into context right, depending on who you are, right, whether you're the prosecutor or you're the defense, to put into context the narrative, right, a clear narrative that a jury will understand or a trier of fact is going to understand of why someone would do this, right? And, and yes, it's true that prosecutors tend to think that they have the law on their side and they don't need a psychologist. I would argue that you always need a psychologist to help put into context a narrative that even though you don't have to prove motive, that you can get that information through a psychologist to help the jury understand. The same thing is true for a criminal defense attorney where 
there is a certain narrative that a person is going – that a jury is going to have once they even read the – once the indictment is read to them. It's a narrative. There's a story that's already developing, and the criminal defense attorney has to work on changing that narrative by having a psychologist talk about what could be at play that the person did not know. Was the echo – the negative feedback loop, the negative echo chamber that they have, was it so deafening? Or was it so intrinsic to who they were as a person that they did not believe that the act that they committed was wrong? It's certainly possible. I, I've never been asked to, to do that. But it is certainly a, 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 an avenue of psychology that could be explored and possibly should be explored given whatever the defense strategy is going to be. Do people ever use this uh, defense as an excuse when it's it's clearly just just them – trying to play the game, trying to get out of something that they did that was wrong? All the time. Um, it's, it's not uncommon at all. And, um, you know, I think that at least in my experience, um, especially with clients that I had worked with over a period of months or even in some situations years, um, oftentimes the, the, the shock of being uh, caught for whatever crime that they may have committed um, will lead them to make excuses um, will lead them to try to you know place blame on something else or someone else, mm-hmm. and the further that time goes on, the further time that goes on, uh, you start to see acceptance kind of kick in, um, and so then they they understand that they're going to have to face up to whatever consequences those may be, especially if we've worked out some sort of plea agreement, and the wheels start turning, and they kind of move away from those uh, those excuses of just saying, I was insane at the time. An- another time this comes up. The competency question is uh, when uh, somebody's waiving their Miranda rights. Yes. Daniel, can you tell the audience what are the Miranda rights? And then Dr. Delatory, tell us what, what, what would the factors be that, that say either they were not or they were competent to understand? Sure. So there, there's a long history um, of, of where Miranda came from. It, it was a case um, that was quite a while back. But basically now, uh, when an officer arrests somebody, um, in order for the uh, any language that the individual use, anything that they've said to an, uh, an, a police officer, an investigator, they have to be what's called Mirandized. So they have to be told um, that they are being arrested. Um, you, you hear it in the cop shows all the time. Mm-hmm. Anything that you say can and will be used against you in a court of law, so on and so forth, um, so that they are o- aware of an arrest being made. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once that happens, um, they are aware that, any again, anything that they say could be used in court testimony, could be used during the prosecution process. Um, where it becomes problematic, and, and this is where Dr. Delatore can explain more, is if a person is even capable of understanding um, what being Mirandized is. So what would those factors be? Right. So in order to waive uh, Miranda, right? So once they're triggered, right, once you're placed into custody, Miranda is triggered and police have to stop, right? Whatever it is, if they're continuing with the question, that's triggered. And so what happens then is during the course of their uh, interview, the police will try to get the person to waive Miranda, Right to say that okay, I've been told this, but now I can. Now I'm just going to tell you whatever it is that I need mm-hmm. to tell you. They have to be able. The individual has to be able to knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily waive their Miranda. If there's any kind of undue influence, or if there's any kind of environmental issue, or if there's any kind of emotional, mental, or illicit substance issue that's at play, that can put a person's waiving of Miranda in jeopardy. Right. It can make it so that even though they sign, right, they put their initials on the piece of paper that says that they waived it. But if they were high on drugs at the time, right, then did they really knowingly, intelligently and voluntarily waive those rights? Or how about like in the movies when Mark Wahlberg beats the guy up and then he decides to confess? That's probably. Yeah, that's not. (laughs) (laughs) No, that doesn't work. Okay, so we're nearing the end of the show, and I've got to ask you, um, because uh, Marquardt Law Firm focuses on wills and trusts and ultimately a person's legacy, Dr. Delatory, um, you know what the question is. And now, it's time for the Talk Law Radio Legacy Spotlight. What's your legacy? Sponsored by Marquardt Law Firm. 
So legacy could be a family heirloom or a, a value that you learned from a family member that has passed or something that you want to leave to beneficiaries in your life or to society at large. How would you like to be remembered? Uh Something that I got from my mom, uh, and clearly it comes from the Bible, uh, to whom much is given, much is expected. And I have had opportunities in my life that other people wouldn't have had and other people who have my background never get to have. And I feel very blessed that I've been able to do what I like to do, and I've been able to educate people um, with some of these more complex and more nuanced kinds of things. So my legacy will be that, I hope is that of an educator and, and, and helping people understand that the world's a lot more of a complex uh, place than we like to think that it is. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Okay. That's the end of the show today. Talk Law Radio. I'm your host, Todd Marquardt. And you can find us on the radio, 9.30 a.m. The Answer. You can find us on talklawradio.com. You can stream from that website, uh, previous episodes about all kinds of things. And you can find us on podcasts everywhere. Just search Talk Law Radio and look for my smiling face. Talk to you later. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.